<laughs> Our scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. So let's read this together. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he has given you now that you belong to Christ Jesus. Through him, God has enriched your church in every way with all of your eloquent words and all of your knowledge. This confirms that what I told you about Christ is true. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this for he is faithful to do what he says. And he has invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The word of God for the people of God. Sometimes the interaction between the standard Gregorian calendar, the United States holiday calendar, and Western Christianity's church calendar leave us with an impossibly limited amount of time to prepare ourselves for the season that is now upon us. And that sometimes is, of course, 2020. Usually, the Sunday after Thanksgiving is the last Sunday of what the Revised Common Lectionary calls ordinary time. We get this one weekend to push away from the turkey table, undo a notch or two on our belt, or at least put on our stretchy pants, and try to catch our breath before we plunge into Advent, but not this year. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, It seems to come quick this year. Our candles won't even light. And all I have to say is bah humbug. Just not quite ready. We haven't even put away the cornucopias and the little pilgrims yet at our house. There's still turkey in the refrigerator. My family is still, as of today, on Thanksgiving break. Add to this, it's 2020, a year that can't seem to end quick enough, the weirdest, wackiest, most challenging year in memory, and we have this year where we have lost so many people that we dearly love, and now we are supposed to immediately turn our attention to hope, love, joy, peace, gift-giving, and all those warm, fuzzy sensations of the season. Bah humbug sounds about right. It's hard to feel it, but it's what we need. Early or not, at the conclusion of this most terrifying and interrupted year, Advent rises with healing in its wings, beginning today with the Sunday of hope. There are four Sundays and four candles in the tradition, four weeks, hope, love, joy, and peace. Each week is a renewed emphasis on the birth of Jesus and these pillars of his life, his ministry, and his message, the candle of hope, sometimes themed the candle of prophecy. It speaks of the promises made to those who were waiting for the Jewish Messiah, the deliverer that was to come, and it speaks to us today as that promise has been fulfilled as we anticipate his second coming and as we attempt to inhabit inhabit the confidence of living in a world where the ultimate outcome is already settled. Julian of Norwich All things shall be made well. All manner of things shall be made well. As Paul said in our text today, He, Jesus the Christ, will keep you strong to the end. 
because the end is in his capable hands. And that is hope. I speak each year of a man named Vaclav Havel, it seems, at Advent time. And I think I have a picture of him here today again. I quote a write about him every Advent. Havel was a Czechoslovakian writer. He wrote plays. He wrote essays. He was a prophet challenging the powers that be where he lived. And as an insurgent against, a peaceful insurgent against his country's Soviet-backed communist government, he was blacklisted, often persecuted. He wasn't allowed to complete his college education. He spent years at a time in jail as a political prisoner, constantly being interrogated, harassed, tortured. But he kept writing, he kept working, he kept pushing his country toward what he called direct democracy, which was anti-consumerism, a world in which we take care of each other and take care of our world. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, his country made him president. They appointed him, you're the man because he had been such an inspirational leader. He had no political ambition, so he called for an election. And in 1990, Czechoslovakia had its first free elections in nearly 50 years. He was elected president by a sweeping majority, and years later, when Czechoslovakia decided that it would divide along peaceful lines and there would, they would create the Czech Republic on one side and Slovakia on the other, Havel was elected president of the Czech Republic again, and guided that country through some of its most transitional and dangerous days. And he was always positive. He was always this picture of smiling upbeatness as you see him here. And he was often asked, how? You endured Nazi occupation, Soviet invasion, imprisonment, after you participate in the liberation of your country, half of it wants to go off and create its own thing. How are you always such an optimist? And he said, I am not an optimist, nor am I a pessimist, because I am not exactly sure how things will end. But I carry hope in my heart. I carry hope in my heart. Hope doesn't mean that the future or your life will turn out the way that you planned. That's wishful thinking. That's naivete. Hope is not a feeling or an emotion. Hope is a fuel. Hope is pressing on. Hope is persistence and determination. It is never giving up on what could or should be. It is the incorrigible belief that people can be transformed. It is resiliency. Hope is what occupied the manger on the first Christmas. A child that perfectly incarnated a love capable of redeeming the world. That is the hope given to us, the hope needed within our hearts. This Advent, maybe we need that kind of hope more than ever. A hope that keeps us pressing on. Here's another story of hope. It's another hero of mine, another stubborn European, the late Nobel laureate, Elie Weissel. Before his death, Weissel would say, a survivor has an authority that no one else has. 
And he used his authority as a Holocaust survivor to write for and to act in the interest of the oppressed as he had been oppressed. In one of his most famous quotes, defending oppressed people, he said, We must take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. And he sounded like his forebears, the Jewish prophets, with those words. His memoir is entitled Simply Night, and it should be read by all people of faith, I think, not just because it is a survivor's story, but because it raises and wrestles with questions that no Sunday school class can answer. Hard, shadowy, impossible questions that cannot be ignored in a world of unyielding injustice, that cannot be dismissed with snowy Christmas cards. When Weissel was a child, he and his Jewish community where he lived in Romania heard rumors of what was happening to their people in other places, and they simply could not believe it. And the rabbis would gather the community together and say, you don't have to worry about these stories. There's no way possible that this can be happening. And in 1944, the Nazis deported Weissel's entire village to Auschwitz. When he arrived at Auschwitz, his mother and his sister were taken from his sight immediately and taken immediately to the ovens where they perished. Weissel and his father survived. They lived at Auschwitz for a year. A year. In a hellish landscape, the most awful place ever created by human hands. In the winter of 1945, as Allied forces drew close to Auschwitz, Weissel and his father with 60,000 other Jews were forced to march 30 miles in a blizzard to Birkenwald. Weissel's father was deathly sick with dysentery. He was weak. He had been beaten by a guard so badly that he could hardly walk. And Eli Weissel, 16 years old, literally carried his father 30 miles, keeping him awake. They laid down on the ground when they got to Birkenwald. Elia wrapped his arms around his father and exhausted himself, fell asleep. And when he woke up, the guards had taken his father away and cast him in the crematorium. Weissel says this, because his face, his faith could not survive. Someone asked, where is God now? And I heard a voice within me answer, where is God? Where is God? He is in the ovens. He is hanging on this gallows. God is dead. And after the passing of his father, He said, never shall I forget all the flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams into dust. Never shall I forget these things even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself. Hopelessness set in for decades. As he aged... He felt something stir within him, though. 
he found his footing again. And he began to take sides with the weak and the oppressed. And as he reached his 60s and 70s, he would say, we will not give up. We will not give in. It may be too late for the victims, even for us survivors, but it is not too late for our children. It is not too late for the future. And a journalist who knew his journey well asked him once, despite your disappointments and your pessimisms, do you remain hopeful? Do you still have faith in God? And this old man's answer was textbook chutzpah, filled with the glory of tenacious hope. He said, I would be within my rights to give up faith in God and I could invoke six million reasons to justify that decision. But I am now incapable of straying from the path charted by my forefathers. We must wager on the future. We must not give in to cynicism. My wounded faith endures. That line is what hope is. My wounded faith endures. You doubt. And you wake up one morning and you believe. You feel like nothing matters. But you keep going. Your faith bleeds And it buckles. And then your faith perseveres. You wonder if tomorrow is worth it. If your best days are behind you. And then you wager on the future. You feel so tired, so worn out by it all. But then you realize that Christ is keeping you strong until the end. You have all the reasons for why you want to give in and give up and no one would blame you. And then you remember where you come from and you find yourself incapable of straying from the path charted by your forebears. And that is hope. It is perseverance. Do you think of someone special? Maybe someone already gone at Christmas each year? We had a few days over Thanksgiving to be with Cindy's mom. It's their first holiday without dad. So thoughts were on him. And then surprise of all surprise, our oldest son, Blaze, arrived on Thanksgiving night in Georgia, flying from West Texas, where he finished up his AIT for the Air Force. I saw my parents for the first time in a year, very briefly. My mom has an autoimmune disorder. She's quite susceptible to illness, so we had to play that safe. Our thoughts were with Bryce, who was on the other side of the world. But there's never a Thanksgiving holiday that goes by that I don't think of my maternal grandmother. That's, yes, that is me 20 years ago, 22 years ago. That is Artie Bearden, and she's holding Blaze the week he came home from the hospital. Every Thanksgiving, we had a massive feast at her tiny house. Only about 80 of our closest immediate family. I have 19 first cousins, so it's a big crowd. She died on New Year's Day 2003, just months before Braden was born. When they liquidated her estate, she had $500. Some of my best memories, some of my most vivid memories of her Some of the greatest lessons I ever learned were sitting around her kitchen table. 
She rarely sat at the table because she was too busy. We sat at the table while she worked. And that kitchen was a paradise, a southern paradise. Fried apple pies, chocolate pies, homemade biscuits, red velvet cake. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Sawmill gravy, fried chicken, and an old iron skillet that doubled as a weapon if it needed to. On any given day, you would find all of that on her table, and on Thanksgiving, even more so. And she had this, this strength. She had this resiliency. She remains to this day, and I'm 50 years old now, the greatest influence on my life. And she had this something that after she has passed that I know to call it hope. I interviewed her for an American history project when I was a freshman in college. Her mother and grandmother had died from the Spanish flu, the great pandemic of 1918, when my grandmother was only two years old. Her older brothers were sent to Europe to fight the Germans in the Great War. She married my grandfather just before the stock market collapsed in 1929 in the Great Depression. In her words, she would say to me, somebody said there was one, a depression, but it was bad before 29 and it was bad after. Then came World War II. She gave birth to eight children, buried one of them. Electricity. Plumbing got to her house about the same time that one of her sons made it to Vietnam. In the course of her lifetime, she witnessed the computer, space travel, the television, air conditioning, disposable diapers, crossword puzzles, penicillin, Tupperware, cell phones, McDonald's, satellite radio, 8-tracks, and MP3s. Think about that. It makes your head spin. And through it all, my grandfather suffered from depression, and addiction and alcoholism, he was given to violence and abuse. But for a southern woman living in the middle of the 20th century with seven children on a cotton farm, there's nowhere to go. She endured. She lasted. She lived 93 years. At the end of that interview, I finally asked her, I said, how, how did you do this? I mean, you raise a kid with kids, seven kids, eight kids with no money. You're knocked around all the time. The world's against you. And she stared out. That's her chair she would sit in, and, she, and that's the kitchen table behind her. And she stared out the window for a few minutes. There's an old oak tree in the front yard. It's gone now. It's the only thing on the property older than her. And it's like she was talking to that tree or something for a minute. And she chuckled. And she looked at me, and she said the greatest words I've ever heard. I just did what I could. And God Almighty took care of the rest. And then she said to me, son, do your best. Everything else is in the good Lord's hand. That's hope. Do the best you can. And what you can't do anything about, it's in God's hands anyway. That is hope. And that's what we stand in need of.